0: All right. Hey, everyone. Like I said, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Highland. I used to be part of the young adults group until last year when I transitioned over and started working with the high school ministry. So it's really good to be back. It's been a few months. I got to say, though, I've been here for a while, so I'm a little nervous. All these new faces, you guys got me nervous up on stage, but I'm excited to get to share tonight. Uh, Sam couldn't be here tonight so we're not starting the upper room discourse until two weeks from now after third Monday and instead tonight I heard you guys had studied second Timothy at the camp out so I wanted to take one of my favorite passages in second Timothy and talk about that tonight and talk about Resilient faith from 2 Timothy 2 1 through 7. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, But how many of you enjoy traveling? How many of you enjoy to travel? You know, so it's kind of like a love it or hate it thing. I personally love traveling, especially cross-culturally to new countries. I know some people that just gives you, you know, like a little bit of anxiety just thinking about that. But I love traveling internationally. And a couple of years ago, I was able to go to Rome for the first time. And I gotta say, from my time over in Rome, it quickly became probably one of the top five places I have ever visited. I mean, first of all, there's all sorts of delicious food over in Italy some of which I probably ate a little bit too much of, right? Not only that, there was all sorts of beautiful art to look at. It's not every day that you see the Sistine Chapel in person rather than in a textbook or a history book. Uh, But the thing that astounded me the most about my time in Rome was the architecture. There was never a place I'd gone before where you could walk down streets that were literally 2,000 years old and see buildings that were constructed during the time of Peter and Paul when they would have walked through the city of Rome. It was astounding. And one of my favorite buildings that I got to see was a building in the heart of old Rome called the Pantheon. Okay, So the Pantheon is a building that was constructed. I think I have a picture of it. The Pantheon was constructed nearly 2,000 years ago. So it would have been just after the time when Peter and Paul would have been in Rome. And when this building was constructed, you can't see too much of it now, but there's a dome at the top, and they literally found a way to do a poured concrete dome that's contoured and thins out towards the top. And they did that without any modern technology or machinery. And it is a building that is still standing 2000 years later through floods, through natural disasters, through being ransacked. This building has stood the test of time because of the unparalleled craftsmanship detail and energy that was put into properly constructing this building, which is pretty amazing to think of a building that's there 2,000 years later. I mean, in the U.S., if a building's standing after 150 years, it's kind of a significant thing, and it gets labeled as a national landmark. Here in Rome, that's like nothing. Multiply that by seven, and you have something coming out of the city of Rome. I want you to keep that image in mind, and then I want you to think about another construction project. This is one that we all know of. Early, earlier this year, we woke up to stories of a condo that collapsed in Miami, Florida. right During the night, the Champlain Tower, the South Tower in their complex, suddenly imploded. And in the blink of an eye, the 13-story building was reduced to rubble. The disaster resulted in the lives of the loss of 98 lives and over a billion dollars worth of damage. It's one of the worst architectural disasters in recent history. And since the condos collapsed, we've learned a few things, and one of which is that the condos management company knew about the significant structural damage to the building's foundation for three years. For three years, they knew that there were vital things that need to be replaced, but they kept kicking the can down the road and thinking that they would get around to it later. For three years, they known that there was major structural damage to the concrete slab below the pool deck. There were multiple support beams in the garage that had eroded and crumbled. And not only that, the rebar that reinforces the concrete many times had eroded away because of constant exposure to the salty ocean air. All of these factors compounded leading to the eventual collapse of the building. And the building was not 2,000 years old. The building was only 40 years old. So contrast those two buildings that we just looked at. One was constructed with unparalleled precision and care and intentionality. It was built on a solid foundation that had been shored up time and time again throughout history. And because of that solid foundation, no matter what came its way, it's still standing 2,000 years later. And I imagine it'll still be standing another 2,000 years from now. But in contrast, the Champlain South Tower was built on a faulty foundation. And over time, as the foundation was increasingly neglected, it deteriorated. It needed to be shored up, but instead the management company just kept kicking the can down the road, thinking that the destruction would never come until it was too late and it toppled over. So as we think about those two buildings— it really gives us a practical illustration of the importance we learn of, that we the importance of foundations. If a building is going to last over time, it needs to have a solid, shored-up foundation. And that is very true in the spiritual realm as well. This evening, I want us to consider how resilient the foundation of our spiritual life actually is. Are we constructing our spiritual life on a firm, solid foundation that will be able to last for a lifetime? Or are we constructing our faith on a faltering, weakened foundation that is eventually going to collapse? And those are important questions for us to ask Because I don't think we want to walk away at some point in our life and have the Champlain South Tower be an analogy for our spiritual lives. We kept kicking the can down the road until the day it was too late. We don't want to ignore the warning signs. And that's exactly what our passage is about tonight. Paul is talking to Timothy, and in this passage, he's giving him some of the warning signs he's seeing in his spiritual life. Here's how he starts in verse one. He says, you then, my child, Timothy, be strengthened. You need to be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. As Paul is looking at Timothy's spiritual life, he's noticed some warning flags uh, and Paul sees some cracks in his spiritual foundation. Paul sees some timidity that's been setting in in his interactions with others. Paul has seen a tendency to be a people pleaser rather than a courageous leader. And Paul says, if these issues are undealt with in Timothy's life, he can see where that's heading. And Paul refuses to let a collapse of his faith become a reality. So with love and care, he comes and says, Timothy, here's some things that you need to do to shore up the foundation of your spiritual walk, shore up the foundation of your faith. And this is one of Paul's last opportunities to do so. If you know anything about the book of 2 Timothy, you know it's the last epistle that Paul ever penned. And it was written right before he died from a prison in Rome. So this is kind of his last shot words to Timothy, his protege, and the faith. And really the big idea that we're going to look at from our passage tonight is that idea of shoring up. So that's our big idea, shore up. The phrase shore up is often used in construction. It's a word that means uh, to strengthen, support, or reinforce something that's weak and about to give in. Just as buildings need their foundations shored up time and time again, in our spiritual life, we are in a constant uh, habit of needing to shore up our spiritual foundation as well. And in our passage, Paul uses four powerful word pictures to teach us four ways that we can seek to shore up the foundation of our faith. So let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll read verses one through seven together and dive into that text. Here's what Paul writes. He says, you then my child, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since it's his aim to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, Paul uses four different pictures in this passage to portray the kind of shored up, resilient faith that Jesus desires us to embody. He compares the life of a maturing disciple to that of a teacher, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And each of these illustrations portrays a key element of what it takes to have a grounded, shored up faith that can withstand whatever temptations or trials or peer pressure might come our way. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at his first illustration. Look back at verse two. Paul encourages Timothy to view himself as a teacher Or another way to phrase that might be a disciple maker. Paul says, hey, Timothy, you need to go and pass your faith along to the next generation. You need to go to younger believers and pass along all the teaching, all the spiritual truth, and all of the life lessons that you have experienced Because at this point in his spiritual life, Timothy had had countless women and men and and disciples pour into his life and help him grow into the maturing follower of Christ that he was. And Paul's looking and saying, hey, Timothy, you've been sitting on the bench a little bit too long. It's time to get off the bench. And rather than just being a spiritual consumer, you need to get back to being a spiritual contributor and contributing to, to the spiritual growth of other people. And that's pushing Timothy out of his comfort zone a little bit, right? It's comfortable when people are pouring spiritually into us. Like that's, that's a nice place to be. But when we're called to go and start pouring spiritually into other people, that's when it gets a little bit scary. I don't know about that. I'm a little scared. What if I say the wrong thing? And we have that timidity, but Paul is reminding us that when we go from being a consumer to a contributor, that's one of the greatest ways that God grows us and strengthens our faith. And this calling is not only for Timothy. This calling is for anybody who bears the name of Christ follower. Every Christ follower is called to be a disciple maker. That's the great commission we see in Matthew 28. So if a Christian never moves from being a spiritual consumer to that of a contributor, their faith will be fragile and the maturity will be minimized. So let's summarize Paul's point this way. He says, you need to pass the torch. That's the idea we get from this analogy of being a teacher. You need to pass the torch. He's encouraging Timothy and by extension, you and me to keep passing along the spiritual torch that's been entrusted to us. Now, I use the imagery of passing the torch because we recently encountered this in the Olympic Games. For the past 90 years or so, the Olympic Games begin with a special ceremony. And the special ceremony, one of the main parts, is the lighting of the Olympic cauldron. Not many times you get to use cauldron in today's world, but there's one, the Olympic cauldron, right? And that is the uh, the. finale of a process that's been going on for an entire year because the night the olympic cauldron is lit it's carrying a flame that actually came from olympia greece this mirrors what they used to do in the ancient Olympic games. They would carry a flame, light the cauldron during the, uh, uh, the entire running time of the games. So there is a relay that takes place the entire year before the Olympics are held. They light the torch from Olympia, Greece, and a relay begins with thousands of different torchbearers running a portion of the race, lighting the next person torch and bringing that eternal flame from Olympia, Greece all the way to the Olympics. Now think about your job if you are a torchbearer. What's your job? Your job is to receive the flame, pass the flame and not be the person who trips and drops it in a puddle, right? Like that is your only job. And actually they have a backup flame in case somebody does that. There've been a few times where someone drops it. So they have a backup eternal flame just in case someone like me would drop it because, you know, some of us have butterfingers. So if you're the, the torch bearer, your job is to receive the flame and pass the flame to the next person. Okay. Well, when we think about it, that's our job as Christ followers as well. Jesus envisions that being the Christian life. We are called to faithfully receive the torch of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the generation that goes before us. And then we're called to faithfully pass the torch along to the next generation. And that's what the church has been doing for over 2,000 years. That's why the church has continued to grow and expand. We have done that. But realize we're only one generation away from the torch being dropped and the flame going out. And maybe not worldwide, but certainly one generation away in our culture, right? We need to be faithful to keep passing the torch along. And realize that is what young adults is all about. That's why we're here. We have a model here where we have mentor couples that lead your life groups, and they are here because they have faithfully received the torch from somebody else, and now they want to pass that torch along to you. Just as they have been invested, they want to invest in you. But our goal ultimately is to see young adults who rise up as disciple makers receive that torch and say, now who can I pass that torch along to as well? Who are the people in your life that God wants you to share the torch of the gospel and all that you've been invested with in your life and give back and teach them? Maybe that's teaching a children's church here on Sunday and starting simple and small where literally they give you the lesson and it is you plug and chug, right? That's all you have to do. And you can start small by passing that truth along. Maybe it's starting a Bible study with some friends or some coworkers or some people you know that want to learn more, more about Jesus, but don't know where to begin. Maybe it's stepping up and being a G180 leader because that's built in discipleship. You get to do what your mentor couples are doing here. And we have some young adults finally as G180 leaders this year. So I am pumped. Thank you for some of you that are serving a G180. It's awesome. So that's, that's Paul's first word of encouragement for us. We are to pass the torch. And that's one of the ways that God can strengthen the foundation of our faith by moving from being a consumer to spiritual Uh, contributor. But then in verse three, Paul shifts gears. He changes analogies and he, he turns from this picture of the life of a disciple of Jesus from that of a teacher to that of a soldier. So look at verses three and four again. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ for no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, but his aim is to please the one who enlisted him, his commander throughout his letters. Paul often uses this imagery of wartime mentality for the Christian walk. And in this instance, he reminds Timothy that the Christian uh, life is about viewing oneself as a soldier on a spiritual battlefield. And as a soldier, there are certain things that we need to expect and be prepared for, right? Soldiers should expect seasons of difficulty in the heat of the battle. Soldiers knowingly forfeit a certain amount of personal liberties in order to serve the army and the military well. Soldiers have to refuse to surrender until their mission is accomplished. And similarly, disciples of Jesus should expect seasons of difficulty and trial in the midst of our spiritual battles. Not only that, we knowingly forfeit some of our liberties so that we better love God and love others. And then lastly, we have to stay focused on accomplishing the mission that has been set before us. And that is actually the specific point that Paul is making through this analogy. He's using this military imagery to tell Timothy to stay on mission. And that's our second point. The image of the soldier reminds us if we need to have a fortified faith, a strong foundation, we need to stay on mission. When you are an active duty soldier, distraction leads to destruction. Soldiers on the front line live a very different life than civilians who are on the home front. As civilians, every day, we have the luxury of letting our guard down. Active duty soldiers have no such luxury. We have the luxury of punching our time card and going home and being able to somewhat detach from work. Soldiers don't have that ability. They're on call 24-7 if they're active duty. Civilians can get away with living relatively undisciplined and indulgent lives. Soldiers can't get away with that. On the battlefield, they have to be the model of self-discipline. Civilians have the flexibility to pursue whatever course we want. If you're in the military, you know very well, you do not get to pursue whatever course you want. You pursue the course the military wants you to pursue. In these verses, Paul is reminding us, That as Christ followers, we are more akin to soldiers than civilians. As Christians, we have both a master and a mission. Our master is Jesus Christ as the savior of our life. When he saves us, he also becomes the leader of our life. And he wants to be our leader. And as a leader, he's given us our, our code of conduct and the New Testament. He's identified our spiritual enemy, which is Satan, and ultimately the evil systems of the world. And if we're being honest, our own sin natures that still reside within us. And he's given us a mission. And our mission is very simple. Love God, love others, make disciples look like Jesus. That's our mission. Love God, love others, make disciples look like Jesus. And we need to realize that if we identify as Christians, that is our mission, whether we think it is or not. To be a Christian, to be a soldier for Jesus, to have him as our master and to accept the mission he has given us. So if the highest priority in our life, if the mission statement of our life is love God, love others, make disciples and look like Jesus, how well are we doing with accomplishing our mission statement? Are we staying on mission? If we're being honest here tonight, we probably have seasons where we do very well. And then we probably have seasons where, you know, we're not quite staying on mission as we should. And in those seasons when we aren't doing particularly well, typically it's because we've drifted off mission. We've lost sight of our main objective in life. We've become distracted by the competing priorities of living in the world that we live in. We've stopped being disciplined and started living lazily and just kind of on autopilot in our spiritual life. And we have all gone through seasons like that. There are moments when we all fall into those ruts. But here's the danger of going off mission for too long. Over time, we drift further and further away until eventually we forget what our mission even was. And we're just consumed by alternative missions and distractions. Let me prove my point. How many of you, other than my G180 leaders who attended my training, no cheating, how many of you know what Harvard College, Harvard University's original mission statement was? Anybody? Anybody know? know? So Harvard College was established in the mid-1600s. It was established as a Bible teaching college so that there would be clergymen in the colonies. And here was their mission statement in 1636. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Strangely, they don't have that on their brochures anymore if you're to look up Harvard College. I would say that they've drifted a little off mission in the last 400 years. Recently, they just appointed a dean over the chaplaincy department of Harvard. That's all the different faith religions their are chaplains. And the dean of the chaplain department is a secular humanist atheist, okay? So... I would say Harvard's drifted a little from the foundation's Jesus to now having a secular humanist as the dean of their chaplaincy program, right? So, so when we look at this, over 400 years, they have drifted so far off mission, now they are doing things that undermine the very mission they were established to bring about. How, how many people would that be true in their spiritual lives? If our mission is to love God, love others, make disciples— and ultimately to look like Jesus, how many of us have drifted so far, we're now living in ways that undermine that very mission? Because Paul's warning us, hey, that can take place in your spiritual life. You can lose sight of your mission and be distracted by alternative mission statements that the world will produce. Maybe it's the mission statement of to be liked and accepted by the most amount of people. Therefore, I'm not really going to make disciples well. Maybe it's to be the smartest person at college and graduate at the top of my class. Not a bad mission statement, but bad if it becomes the sole focus of your life and energy. To be the most successful person at your place of employment and make a ton of money. Once again, not a bad thing to want to be successful, but if that's your chief aim, as we talked about in Sunday morning, Pastor Jeff said, anything that surpasses God can be an idol in our life that we're worshiping. Or maybe the mission statement is to delay adulthood as long as possible and have as much fun as you can. I mean, that is the mission statement of young adults for our, our nation. As Christian, none of those things are the mission statement for our life. Our mission statement is love God, love others, make disciples, and look like Jesus. How well are we doing tonight with living out that mission statement? And if we aren't doing so well, what's the alternative that has been consuming our hearts? So that's our second principle. If we're going to shore up the foundation of our spiritual life, we need to stay on mission. But then thirdly, Paul shifts his metaphor again to compare the life of a disciple of Jesus to that of an athlete. Look at verse five. He said, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, due to the popularity of athletic competitions in this period of history, Timothy would have immediately known what Paul was referring to. So during this time period, uh, the Olympic games were going on. There were also games called the Isthmian games that were going on. And if you were to be an athlete in either the Olympic or Isthmian games, you had to sign up and take a pledge that you would follow a strict, rigorous 10-month training program. And you had to take an oath that you would uphold that training program religiously. And that's what Paul has in mind. No one who's an athlete signs up without the acknowledgement that they are going to submit themselves to the training program for 10 months and then abide by the rules once the athletic competition actually begins. Athletes who refused to follow the directions were either disqualified or embarrassed by their performance. In the world of athletic, shortcuts never led to the victor's crown. And I think that's the third principle Paul is making in Timothy's life. You need to avoid spiritual shortcuts you need to avoid shortcuts in your life. That's what Paul's referring to here. And just think of a real life example of this principle. How many of you know the marathon runner Rosie Ruiz? Anybody? Rosie Ruiz. Okay, like one person knows who Rosie Ruiz. At 26 years old, this was a few decades ago, she ran the Boston Marathon, and she completed it in record time, just over two and a half hours, right? That's the only marathon that we've done in two and a half hours is probably a Netflix marathon. Am I right? Yeah, that's what I thought. As she crossed the finish line, it appeared like Rosie won the gold medal by a long shot. But there were some interesting things going on. Onlookers noticed that she had barely broken a sweat. Not only that, but her hair was still perfectly styled and she barely looked out of breath or flushed. So something seemed off, but she got all this notoriety. It was published, nationwide news, all these things. But the Boston Marathon Commission was not to have the wool pulled over their eyes. So they started some investigation and learned that Rosie ran a mile of the marathon. She started at the beginning and then found a way to ditch pretended she had a sprained ankle and went down to the subway. And then when everyone wondered what she was doing, she said, Oh, I hurt myself, but I just want to see the finish. Got off half a mile before jumped the line back in when no one was looking and finished the marathon. So, uh, let's just say her gold medal, uh, was taken back. (laughs) She was disqualified from ever running in the Boston Marathon again, and she was really publicly humiliated because they learned that she actually didn't run the race that she had claimed that she ran. Shortcuts don't end in victory. Shortcuts end in disqualification. And Paul's reminding Timothy that's true in our spiritual lives as well. If we want to have a enduring, resilient relationship with Jesus, we can't take spiritual shortcuts. We can't skip the assigned spiritual training. We can't violate the code of conduct and then expect commendation from Jesus when we finish our earthly races and face him in eternity. Just like an athlete, the only way to be victorious is to train hard, to try our best by the grace of God, to obey his guidelines and repent quickly when we don't, and to not take shortcuts. So we need to be on guard though, because the opportunity and temptation to take spiritual shortcuts are everywhere. Maybe we're tempted by the shortcut to not invest in our spiritual training and spiritual lives now, but we just think once we get married and have a family, boom, we're gonna be really good at doing the spiritual thing. No, right? That, no, that doesn't work. That's more pressure and it gets harder, right? It, what you're doing now It's just gonna be amplified. Don't expect not to train and then one day magically be really good at something that doesn't work in any other part of life. It doesn't work in your spiritual life. Maybe we're taking the shortcut of, hey, I identify as a Christ follower, but this Hebrews 12 thing of running the race that God set before me, I don't really like the race he picked. You know, I I wanna go on Mario Kart and pick the map I wanna run and I want this fun one instead. I don't really like the one God picked out. So identify as a Christ follower, but I want to choose the race that I get to run. No, can't can't do that. And Hebrews 12 is very specific. Run the race that God has set before you. We don't get to choose our race. It's the race that God has chosen. Maybe we are falling for the spiritual shortcut of wanting to enjoy something good in our life, but, but not doing the right things to get there or trying to enjoy it without putting the hard work in. Maybe it's wanting good grades on a project, but rather than doing it the right way and glorifying God, we cheat and take shortcuts to get the A because it's easier. Maybe we want a good reputation, but rather than putting in the hard work of building character, we're just hypocrites. right? Maybe it's the good gift God has given humanity of sex, which is to be enjoyed within the context of a covenantal relationship in marriage, but taking the shortcut and saying, yeah, I don't really want to do it that way. The reality is we will all face temptations to take spiritual shortcuts. However, shortcuts never lead to spiritual maturity or a growing relationship with Jesus. Short, there are no shortcuts that lead to good character. There really aren't. Shortcuts promise a lot, but they never get us where they promise. Instead of taking spiritual shortcuts, Paul encourages us to compete according to the rules. Being a part of the community of Christ means we submit ourselves completely to the coaching and training regiment that Jesus has perfectly prepared for us. If we want to run our spiritual races well, there's no easy button approach. There's no shortcuts to the finish line. Running our races well takes commitment, passion, and faithful obedience to King Jesus. So let's move on to our, our final analogy. We're running out of time here, but in verse six, Paul uses one final metaphor to highlight a fourth principle for a spiritual foundation. He says the hardworking farmer should be the first one to receive a share of the crop. Here's the point Paul's making here. He's comparing the life of discipleship to that of a hardworking farmer. How many of you ever worked on a farm growing up? Okay. It was super easy, right? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Farming is hard, hard work. There's no such thing as a lazy farmer. There are seasons, especially around harvest season or whatever else it might be, where you don't get days off, you don't get to take vacations, you're working from dusk till dawn, and it's exhausting. And here's Paul's implied question. What motivates the farmer to keep working hard? Why isn't a farmer getting lazy and saying, man, I'm tired of putting all this work in. This is really tough. How do farmers overcome the hurdle of laziness and indifference? He gives the answer at the end of the verse. He says, because it's the hardworking farmer who receives the first share of the crop. The hardworking farmer pushes through the pain because of the promised reward of the harvest. And if you're back in an agrarian society where you farmed for your, your life and your livelihood and survival, right? That's a really important thing. What pushes the hardworking farmer? It's the joy of the harvest, It's once the harvest is over, that time of rest and and rejuvenation. You literally get to enjoy the fruit of your labor and enjoy what you have worked so hard to produce. Then not only that, you have the peace of mind of knowing during the winter months, your family's not going to starve because you have stored up enough food for that time. The hardworking farmer pushes through because of the promise and reward of the harvest. And Jesus says that is true in our spiritual life as well. As Christ followers, Jesus calls us to labor hard for his kingdom. And that labor includes battling our areas of temptation, giving everything in our life to to work for the glory of God. It includes using our spiritual gifts. It means spreading the good news of the gospel. It means loving God and loving other people. It's hard work. And there's going to be moments where we want to throw in the spiritual towel There's going to be times where you say, man, I don't want to get up today and work that hard. But Jesus says, Paul is saying to Timothy, in those moments, consider the reward, push through the pain. Here's our fourth principle from the farmer to say it another way, remember your why. Remember your why. Just as the farmer remembers her why when it's difficult to push through and to keep working, Paul tells Timothy, you need to remember your why when you feel like throwing in the towel spiritually. And here are just five whys that I thought of that should propel us forward in our spiritual life. What is our why? Here's our first why, gratitude, gratitude, right? I think of Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. I just talked about this a couple Sundays ago for communion. Jesus says, come to me all who labor spiritually and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and I will give rest for your weary souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a sense of gratitude where we were heavy laden and burdened by sin. We could not atone for it. There's nothing we could do to earn God's forgiveness. But Jesus says, rather than these heavy burdens that the world is laying on saying, here's the rules, here's the thing you have to follow. Here's do this, do this, do this. And you earn God's Come to me, lay all your burdens down, put your trust in me and you will find rest. And as people who have experienced that spiritual rest, it gives us a sense of gratitude to now go and happily and joyfully serve our king. Here's a second why, joy, joy. I think of Acts 20, 35. Uh, This is Paul speaking and and he says, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. We work hard because we realize that there is a blessing that comes from God when we are giving and contributors rather than demanding to be consumers. Some of the most miserable people are the people that give the least, right? There is a joy that comes from serving others because that's how God's designed us. And if you never get past wanting to be served yourself to serving others, you will be robbed of the greatest joys in life because the greatest joys don't come from consuming but contributing. So joy. A third why. Transformation. Transformation. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image, the likeness of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit works in us to conform us to the image of Jesus more so. And the idea is, the more that we grow to look like Jesus, the more we can look back and see how changed we are through the power of the Spirit. Now, You can tell I am not a frequenter of the gym, okay? But for those of you that are, one of the things that compels you to keep going is by seeing progress, right? You've been working out for a few months, and you can see the progress. You see the muscles being more defined. You see the weight that's been lost. You see the physical progress of how you've changed. That's true in our spiritual life. We are being conformed. Our spiritual image is being changed and transformed. The fat is being cut off and we are looking more like Jesus. And part of our why is we can see the transformation and say, though it's hard work, though it's difficult, I like the person God is renewing me to be. A fourth why is heaven. Matthew 25, 21, Jesus tells us that the good servant will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy, the rest of your master. At the end of this life, there is joy and rest coming from our master for those who served him well. Eternity is worth serving Jesus for now. And then lastly, our fifth why is reward. Reward. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul reminds us we have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and everyone's going to receive what's due to them and what they've done in their body, whether for good or for evil. For those who don't know Jesus, that judgment seat is gonna be a judgment of condemnation. For those who do know Jesus, it's gonna be an evaluation of faithfulness for future reward. And Jesus says, when you are serving me and following me, you are storing up an eternal harvest in heaven. So he says, look ahead to the eternal reward and be reminded of that. Those are five whys when we feel like throwing in the towel. So really the summary of tonight's lesson is this, spiritual discipline Without any direction is drudgery. That's an author uh, that I love that wrote that, that uh, Donald Whitney. Discipline without direction is drudgery. But thankfully, God doesn't call us just to have discipline without giving us any direction. We know where we're headed. Discipline with a purpose becomes a passion, okay? And we have a purpose to our discipline. And when we understand that, it can grow into our passion. Much of this passage is talked about having discipline in our spiritual life, but Jesus doesn't tell us to just be disciplined. He gives us the destination of where a life of spiritual discipline leads to, and it is a glorious destination. However, a life without spiritual discipline leads to destruction. So our final takeaway tonight is looking at our lives and saying, am I seeing a pattern of discipline or disobedience? Am I constructing a good foundation that'll do to the end or a fragile foundation that will falter? How can I better pass the torch, stay on mission, avoid shortcuts, and remember my why? Those are great questions to get to discuss in your groups at your table. So I'll pray and close our time out, and then I'll give you some quick directions. Father, thank you so much for this important passage. We are so grateful for the amazing ways in scripture you have given us pictures and images and analogies and all sorts of different methods of of way truth has been recorded so that we can understand it and apply it to our lives. And these different pictures of being the, the athlete, the farmer, the teacher, and the soldier allow us to see how each image speaks powerfully into our lives and shows us how we can better live the life that you have called us to live. Thank you for the encouragement, allow us to see the destination you're calling us to so our discipline becomes a passion knowing the purpose behind it. Give us great conversations at our tables and uh, just be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.